you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Live from the NASDAQ market site right here in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. So here's what's on tap tonight. Grinding higher, stocks climb on the first trading day after Christmas, but can December's strong gains carry into the new year? We will, of course, debate that. Plus, in the chip sector, Intel announcing plans to build a new $25 billion chip facility in Israel. That stock is now up nearly 50% in just the last three months alone. So is it too late to bet on the semis after this year's already big surge? And then later on, going to pot. Investors in weed this year have felt like you were lighting your cash on fire. Is there any reason to believe that 2024 will be any better than this past year? We'll ask the executive chairman of Curaleaf coming up on the show. I'm Dominic Chu, in for Melissa Lee tonight, coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. On the desk tonight, Tim Seymour, Carter Worth, Bono and Eisen, and Julie Beal. But first, we start with another winning day on Wall Street. The Dow jumping just about 159 points. The Nasdaq and the S&P 500 also finishing the day higher. The S&P 500 now within striking distance of its all-time high hit back in January of 2022. We're just about a percent or so away from there. And then take a look at the Nasdaq 100, locking in on an all-time high and record close. It's now on the cusp of its best year since 1999. Ooh. Yeah. The dot-com era. That's all the way back to when Bill Clinton was still president. This year, it's up 54%. With three trading days left in 2023, can the market's winning streak carry straight into the new year? We'll start tonight's discussion with you, Tim, about the momentum. A lot of folks think it can keep going. Well, first of all, welcome. Merry Christmas. Thanks for coming here. Uh, And crazy Times Square, folks, by the way. If you haven't been around here, it's crazier after Christmas than it is before Christmas. And, and you can make an argument this market's as crazy as it was back in, in 2002 because, and this is really the setup, and it's great to have Carter here tonight too because I think the charts, you know, we did something very similar in terms of the price action in, you know, the fall or, you know, going into the Santa Claus rally, which I guess technically we're in it now. But you had 13% on the S&P from mid-October of 2021 into those markets that peaked on January 4th. Uh, I think the NASDAQ did about 18%. I think semis did uh, about 24%. And, and look, you know, the same kinds of moves, even that much more accentuated, the difference being uh, we don't have a Fed that's about to embark upon a major cycle. We have a, set, a Fed that, if anything, that, that's an easing cycle. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about whether that's foreboding for stocks because Fed's not cutting for good reasons typically. In this case, maybe it is back to what you said. The leadership is intact. The leadership that, that is those six or seven stocks, there's some arguments out there that actually their earnings growth is making those stocks cheaper. Uh, listening to John Stoltz's in a couple of minutes, John's uh, got some great views on the market. I think this leadership, uh, at least for now, has taken us higher. And, well, and again, semis are leading the way today, which will lead the queues tomorrow. The charts, Carter, have been interesting only because we've seen what some say is a broadening, a broadening out of the markets overall. It hasn't just been that magnificent seven. We've seen other stocks participate to the upside. We've seen equal weight indices do a little bit better and outperform. 
does that bode well technically? Well, since the October 27th low, the uh, equated S&P has outperformed the actual S&P, to your point. Um, so the breadth has improved. But the key word you use is momentum to start off. Uh, momentum is a powerful thing, and it, and it goes in both directions, right? When something's in a free fall, that momentum uh, continues often much further than the imagination will allow. And same here, too, on the upside. To think on the October low, the Dow was down for the year. Meaning this recent strength has saved the market um, and has saved the Dow and many other industries. The question is, um, to the end of the year, this is seasonally a very strong period. Everyone knows that the last week of the year, on average, is about a 50 basis point gain versus all weeks. The average gain since the beginning of the S&P is about 14 basis points. So you're talking about a period that not only has a seasonal bias, but this final week is particularly strong. And we're seeing it now. The real question also, which you asked, is does it follow through into January? I suppose there's a little bit of that. I think the new high is wanted, so to speak. The Dow has made the new high, the S&P not. But the real question is, um, do we really uh, put on a big Q1? I don't think so. Okay, Julie, let's go over to you because the Q1 catalyst that everyone's going to talk about the most is this idea of a Fed possible, I, I should say, hypothetical rate cut. A lot of folks say that it's been a little bit too perhaps telegraphed in the market. A lot of folks thinking that maybe it shouldn't even happen the way that the inflation picture is shaping up. Is the Fed the really big catalyst? Is it the only catalyst that we're watching in in Q1? I don't think it's the only catalyst. It's the easiest catalyst. And I think that's kind of been what's been moving markets is everyone can kind of attach themselves to that idea. But now valuations are looking a little bit more full. And so what we need is we need earnings growth. And I think that actually becomes much more critical as the year goes on in 2024. My concern continues to be just the level of excess spending that we are having where people are just not saving. They're going down into their savings. And at some point that that gives. And in an economy that's really driven by the consumer, what we really need is for the labor econ- the labor market to really hang in there. It needs to stay robust or we are in trouble. That's it. Bono, when the labor story has been intact for the most part, you can talk about nitpicking a little bit, but unemployment is still very good on a you know long-term basis. Jobless claims are still relatively good in terms of the way that they're showing the unemployment picture. The macro narrative is is, at least for now, relatively supportive. Is that taking away any of the fuel that the Fed might have to even think about cutting rates? Um, I don't think it's taking away. Listen, I think the economic resilience is testament to the the balancing act that they've been able to make. Uh, It really does bring into question, what then is the real incentive for for cutting rates? I mean, we understood that the higher for longer, the inflationary story, we now see resilient economic growth, although it's moderating, but still, I would say, relatively resilient. Um, And we're starting to see a disinflation story. I think that is, if anything, it's what gives the Fed power to continue to 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 or to, to move to cut rates. I do think a lot of that is priced in. And that's really why. The, the carry forward story is a bit more challenging. I, I think, as we've all said, it's hard to argue against the rally into the last week of the year and perhaps the first half of January. But thereafter, you start to get bank earnings. You do start to see some of the fundamental analysis that's, gonna, that's going to come into play when looking on, on deploying capital going forward. And so I think that there is still some murkiness there. And there has been quite a significant pull forward in terms of expectations of the Fed to pivot and cut, as you, as you mentioned earlier. Bono, and one of the things that we want to keep a close eye on is the leadership, as Tim spoke about, this notion that we could see the continued momentum of some of those certain stocks. Do you believe 
that it still really is just dependent on large cap technology, communication services, and consumer discretionary? Uh, it's going to be dependent, but not not solely dependent. We have seen some brightening out, particularly we've seen some resilience or, or some uh, resilience in the small caps. We've seen some rallies now in terms of the regional banks, some of the more suppressed markets or submarkets um, within the broader uh, market confines. So I, I do think you are seeing some more economically cyclical pockets of the market catch a bit. And I do think that that is good. And the economic resilience that I've mentioned before does speak to that. Again, as Julie mentioned, it really comes down to the consumer. There was such a pull forward in terms of savings uh, and that they've continued to spin down. It's not as if we have a new glut of, of savings to tap into. So that's really the overhanging thing that gives me some pause and concern going forward. Tim, well, the, the, the consumer discretionary story is so fascinating. I, There's so many different levels of this. By the way, I just want to say fundamentally, anecdotally, this idea that Walmart is going to offer a firm buy now, pay later at self-checkout kiosks is yeah, probably a sign of the times. When, when that news shot a firm to the moon, I said, this is your opportunity to throw that one back out there. I, I don't love this. I don't like discretionary. I'm short a couple names. I actually have a small short in Lulu. Doesn't mean it's not a great company, but I, I think the discretionary part of the story for next year is one that's going to have challenges. But I, I would argue that the whole story for the market is not top-down. Bonowitz pointing out macro, that's, that's difficult, although we got house prices today that, again, hit all-time highs. But this is a bottom-up story. This is where the street is. This is where we're about to hear the, from, from Oppenheimer. But um, the earnings growth story, look, we had a earnings recession. We had three quarters of, of a pullback in EPS. The argument for the street right now is that this is a bottom-up story, that you're actually growing earnings. Nobody's saying the world's going to be great in 24 in terms of the top-down. They're saying that the bottom-up is better, that these companies, the productivity uh, has gotten a lot better. And depending on who you're asking, but I mean, Goldman upgraded. Even Morgan Stanley has their barbell where they say you can get some late cyclicals and some defensives and you can be okay here. So that's, let's not, con I don't know if anyone's confusing, but I, I just want to make it clear. This is a bottom-up market story, not a top-down. No, speaking of barbells, Julie, let's, let's wander into your realm a little bit here. It's the mega cast we've been speaking so much about, but it's also about some of that small cap outperformance that we've been seeing. Do you feel as though there's any sign in that small cap market right now that says, listen, this could keep going? And is there any stock or industry group within small caps, whether it's biotech or financials or elsewhere, that has a real chance to outperform it. Yeah, absolutely. I think for sure, you know, we haven't quite seen the valuation uplift in small caps that we have in larger caps. So they're relatively attractively priced. And, you know, if we get some version of a soft landing, you know, they should do pretty well. They're pretty economically sensitive. I think the real trick is we don't know, right? There's still enough concerns about the level of consumer debt, there's still enough concerns about you know, the weaker PMIs. So you really, if you're going to be in small cap, it's just not a sector that you want to be using ETFs for. You really want to focus on fundamental analysis where you're focused on quality and you can really pick out the gems that are that are here. It's, it's really hard and you need to be very, very uh, discerning in terms of what you're choosing. So a big part of that small cap or large cap story is going to lie with interest rates because the 10-year yield has dropped more than 20%. If you want to look at it in percentage terms, a lot of pros do not. But it's a full percentage point plus below where it was at cycle highs. On October 19th, it topped over 5%. So Carter, you think that we've actually hit a, quote, mature intermediate decline and there could be a bump up in yields. That sounds fancy for it's going to bottom out and head higher. 
Uh, choose your words. That works for me. Um, but I think the point is, this, what's moved the most is the rate sense. Look at the regional bank, KRE, which is small cap. Of course, that is almost double that of the BKX or home builders, right? Up 40% from their October low, much more than the market. That's simply a rates thing. But at this point, the move from above 5% to now 383, um, it's nine weeks in the making, and sequencing would suggest you get some sort of bounce. And remember, whenever you start to hear a moniker, higher for longer, guess what happens? The exact opposite, right? So it was very popular. Now we're hearing rates are going to go lower. They'll cut 55 times. It's all going to go down. I think you want to traffic in the other direction here. And we can see it on, on the screen, just playing for a slight bump up. We were 383 uh, last week in July. We hit over five. Now we're here back at 383. I I'm going to play for uh, a bump up in yields back towards four and change. All right, so that's 17 bips, 17 basis points from where we are at the cycle, at least this cycle low right now, as you're seeing on the chart here. Yeah. Tim, does that feel right to you? I think he's right. I mean, you know, we had a three standard deviation move in terms of the intensity and the velocity move higher. We've, we've pulled back almost as quickly. Um, note also the dollars move with the pullback in rates. The dollar's down almost five and a half percent from that Dixie level, which peaked, you know, around November 1st. It's actually at least on this cycle. Um, that's also been great for stocks. And, and the question is, the dollar typically sniffs out Fed policy. And if you've been investing internationally, if you've been investing in resources, um, I think the dollar is going to be your friend. But I, it's kind of what Carter's saying. You've had such a big move in the dollar. If the U.S. economy is not falling apart um, and and some of it is central bank differentials. I look at Europe and I and I think, um, you know, I think their economy is worse than ours. So let's talk about the trade besides the dollar and the rate side specifically. We'll bring in Wall Street's biggest bull for now. Based on the latest CNBC market strategist survey, John Stoltzfus is the chief investment strategist at Oppenheimer Asset Management. Uh, it is for right now the most bullish target on Wall Street. Give us the number and take us through the fundamental reason why. Well, it's only 5,200 from where we are right now. I put it in, uh, uh, what was it? I, I, it was at the bottom. It was around. In October, uh, you, you downgraded. And then. Because yeah. we had gone, we came in this year with a 4,400 target. At the end of uh, July, we raised it to 4,900. And then we ran into that three-month downdraft. We thought the bears were really serious about this. They were going to imitate a 2018. We didn't take it as a fundamental change. We just thought the negative pitch book was out on the desk, and that's what they were rolling with. And so we reduced it to 4,400 again. Now I'm sitting here going, well, you know, we're only uh, we missed that 49 would have been nice to have because it's probably an opportunity to see it. I'm not changing my target. I'm sticking with 44 with 5,200 for next year. That's only about eight, nine percent up from where we are right now. The economy, as you all said, is is doing remarkably well. The Fed has been remarkable once it got away from being behind the curve. The Fed caught up. The Fed moved ahead. It cut inflation by about half. And in fact, some of the latest numbers, the big figure, they were under three on a couple of the key indexes that they index numbers that they look at. So when you look at it, the consumer is in remarkably good shape based on other cycles. You know, I've been doing this. I've been in this business since 1983. So I've been I came in when Paul Volcker was in his second term. So this is the, the Ben Bernanke legacy Fed is amazing in that it is highly sensitive as to how it applies its mandate of a good economy and full employment, somewhere between 3 and 4 percent unemployment. Uh, and it has been very sensitive. The only time it got really intense was that 475 bips hike last year. And since then, if you look at the whole cycle, it's been, what, 11 
11 hikes and four pauses, or, or skips as they call it. So we can't help but think that 5,200 makes sense. We're looking for earnings around 240, about 9% up from where this year is likely to come in at around 230. Our expectations are that it'll still be our call has remained cyclicals over defensives. We think technology is in good shape in the sense that it is not showing signs of being at a plateau. So even when it becomes richly valued, the next thing you know, you got another development on hand that offers prospects for higher earnings. John, I mean, the, the rate story matters because it, it features into models, risk-free rates do. Oh. I wonder from your perspective, when you set that oh. price target, how much of this, it's a mix between earnings growth, absolute how much the money the mm -hmm. S&P is yep. going to make, and then the multiple that you attach to it. So how much is earnings growth per se, and then how much is the multiple expansion aspect? Yeah, well, the, the multiple expansion certainly does, does play a role in here. We're looking for around 21.7 times forward based on our, our earnings projection and our target. But consider the fact that the market is really, you know, it, it's many different types of players from all different parts of the world. But Essentially, it's divided between traders and intermediate to longer term investors. The intermediate to longer term investors in the near term here, any weakness that they see are likely, if not buying the dips, which we wouldn't suggest, buy the babies that get thrown out with the bathwater, the good stuff that gets knocked down. Uh, because And their, their goals and objectives are very different. They're about preparing for a retirement, funding a retirement to not reduce one's uh, standard of living if one lives longer than one would expect, kids' education, all this serious stuff. Uh, and it's not that the short-term stuff isn't serious. It most certainly is. It keeps liquidity in the market. But we think that it's opportunity for further widening, broadening of this rally. Uh, when I last looked, the, I think the Russell's up from October 17th. It's up, I think it's up 20, it's up 20, uh, 25 percent. The smalls are up 24, Wait, John, and they were in the toilet before. Yeah, no, and so I, I, it sounds like you're making the argument that this is liquidity-driven. Because when I hear 21.7 <coughs> times when, when yep. rates are 400 basis yep. points higher than they were pre-COVID when we were trading yep. at 18, yep. um, it's hard for me to reconcile this in a world where, and I, look, um, I, I get where we are with the leadership of the market. I think it's very difficult to argue with that, but it's also very difficult for me to, 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 to reconcile where we are on a forward multiple of almost 22 times. Um, you're good with that. Yeah, I, 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 I feel this, I mean, comfortable. You know, this, this price target on Wall Street right now is the exact same it was two years ago. Yeah. Two years ago, the Christmas week of 2021, Wall Street's projections for earnings were 230. And here we are. Projecting for 24, it's 230, and the price target was around 49, and here we are looking at 5,000. Um, I think it, part of the convention of Wall Street is to predict something that's arbitrary. The real value add is like saying what you're saying is cyclicals versus defensive, because yeah. that's where alphas generate. It's not throwing darts yep. at a 12-month price target, right? And, 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 and in essence, what, what we what we see here is you're you're in an environment where we're about right about where we should be in terms of uncertainty. The fact that in, that the yield on the 10-year pulled way back, you know, from off from five or we were 389 or something like today, something like that. Uh, last I looked, my point is I think that interest rates could probably go. You, you can see the 10-year market price. It's that the yield is at four, four and a quarter, and I think that's livable. This is it's the end of free money. It's a good thing. It means bond issuers pay for the privilege of borrowing money. Bond buyers get something in return. Diversification is back as a, as a, as a methodology for building portfolios. And this is a, not an easy spot to get through, 
but it would look to me to be highly navigable. Now, John, we could go on forever. We yeah, got to go, could. but. And you know I could. I know. I know you could. <laughs> One or two words. Your favorite sector for 2024. Favorite sector. It, it has to be split between tech and consumer discretionary. Fair enough. All right. John Stolfus over at Oppenheimer. Thanks, Thank John. you very much. Thank Happy you. holidays, sir. All right. Thank you very much. If you want more on that bullish and least bullish strategist call on Wall Street, you can actually go find that full story on CNBC's market strategist survey. You can see it on the screen right there. Just go over to CNBC.com. We've got full results from all the analysts and strategists that we poll. Now, let's trade what John just talked about here. Bonowin, I'll throw this one to you first. Cyclicals over defensives, tech and consumer discretionary over some of the more defensives out there. What's your play? Uh, listen, I think you continue to lean into some of the strength of tech. He's also underwrite utilities, which I can get behind. A little bit of a pushback on the forward multiple, particularly given uh, where we are in the rate story and where we are with, uh, with tightening altogether. All right. There's the trade. Thank you very much, Bonwin. Coming up on the show, M&A is heating up in biotechnology. Bristol-Myers striking another big deal in just three days as AstraZeneca scoops up a Chinese player in biotech. So will the merger mania continue in 2024? Our traders will debate that story next. Plus, not a very cheery holiday season for the energy space. Nat gas dropping hard over the last few months. And with predictions of a milder start to the new year, how will weather conditions impact energy? We're digging into that when Fast Money returns. We're back into. You're watching Fast Money here on CNBC. We'll be right back. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bristol Myers Squibb striking a $4.1 billion deal to buy Raise Bio in a bid to bolster its cancer drug pipeline. It's the second deal in less than a week for BMY. Last week, remember, they bought Corona Therapeutics for $14.1 billion, with Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk seemingly locking up the obesity side of the market for now. Is the rest of pharma ready to make lots of deals in cancer and beyond to try to get investors more interested in their stories? There's a lot more in this story, guys. And let's talk a little bit about the outperformance that we're seeing, Tim, specifically in some of the biotechs and biopharmas that are not at the bigger mega cap side of the spectrum. Many of those companies are the ones doing the outperformance. Yeah, and, and, and the, the big picture, this could have been part of our conversation uh, last block because you've seen healthcare really underperform. And if you look towards next year, if, if the world gets a little a little uglier, um, I, I think healthcare is going to do great. But IBB, the biotech ETF, very concentrated with some of the biggest names as opposed to the XBI. You have you know 900 basis points of outperformance to the IYH, which is some of the big cap pharma. Bristol-Myers, this deal, look, they, they've been on a bit of a spending 
spree. There's an argument they should be on a bit of a spending spree. I mean, I, I would make an argument that they've had some of the same challenges uh, with less in the spotlight than a Pfizer, but people are questioning what's going on with the pipeline. Well, in a world where there's been GLP and everybody else, uh, oncology, and, and then the radiology component of the oncology is what this deal is all about. And this is where uh, I think people are excited about where they're looking out to 2030. But this is, again, four or five years out on a pipeline. And this is where, you know, valuation you can play around all you want with in the sector. I think IBB and I, I look at, you know, I look at the Amgens and, and, and the Biogens. And I think that is a safer place to be based upon both the balance sheet and where these guys have a, a better earnings profile. I mean, we're, we're talking about a $105 billion company in Bristol-Myers. So we'll call it mega cap. And we're talking about 14 to $4 billion takeover targets, and that's where these stocks are doubling, right, like what we saw this morning. I wonder if the charts, are you seeing anything, Carter, there that says that it is going to be the mega cap IBB types, or is it going to be more the equal weight XBI types that are going to do something? And you both are raising that important point. The pure way to look at it is through XBI because it's equal weight. If you look at that theme or that area of the market, it was the single most destroyed from the 21 peak to the lows. But it has moved up 40% from the low, matching the the home builders because it's a small cap uh, phenomenon, but it's also, well, if rates are, are going to be calming down, we can play with multiples more. But either way, I, I think one once, and you can see it here on that chart, I mean, a triple bottom, it's beautiful, the move above the trend line. And so the question is, do you play this momentum versus, let's say, KRE? I think this has legs, whereas something like KRE, not so much. So you would rather smaller tap, mid-cap, smid-cap biotech versus smid-cap banks? Hard to put any big dreams on banks, but you can certainly do that with biotech. All right, so Julie, If we talk about the biotech trade, and we did kind of allude to this during the small cap question I posed to you last block, the biotech story is all about alpha when it comes to some of these names that just get taken over and double in value overnight. Yeah, I think this is the place where I have the real caveat that you know you you do not want to be playing in terms of, of ETFs and, and broad sectors. But this, unless you have very very deep robust expertise in biotechs, it's very hard to invest in them on a one-off basis. But it's really clear that these pipelines absolutely need to be replenished. The valuation discussions have really defrosted a lot. Many of the biotech businesses just weren't for sale at the prices that the drug companies wanted to pay. And as rates start to compress. We're in a better situation. And the thing, too, is to think about for these companies that aren't getting to participate in GLPs, you know, they don't mind buying these businesses that are still in very interesting sectors like schizophrenia and cancer research, which are still big opportunities that we actually know more about than these GLPs. So I think it's just it just makes sense and it probably continues, but it's very hard to really pick the winners here. All right. It's not just about obesity these days. Thanks. uh, Thanks a lot, Julie. There's a lot more here to come on Fast Money. So here is what's coming up on the show. A natural gas New Year's resolution. Can energy climb back from its holiday slump or will weather conditions continue to weigh on the space? The impact on prices next. Plus, Intel's historic chip deal, where the semi-maker is building a new plant. And if there's any more crunch in the chip trade ahead. You're watching Fast Money Live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, 
today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Natural gas prices sinking almost 2% today on reports that the weather next month could be, what else, warmer than expected. The commodity has fallen nearly 50% over the last year. So what could this mean for energy in 2024? Bonowin. Well, I think for one, it continues to play into the disinflationary story. Now, while it's not in the core, I mean, energy is, is out, it does speak to the ability of the consumer to continue to spend and or save. Um, as we alluded to earlier in the segment. What I will say is I think when you start to get down into the natural gas, you want to compare UNG versus, let's say, a range resources. I think you still want to be in the, the operating companies there, you know, as opposed to being to something that is really so ebbed and flowed in terms of supply and demand. So range resources, I know it's been downgraded by a couple of the shops recently, but still at 45% net margins, I think you might still have some upside. I think that trend is still very much uh, in play and strong Tip. and up to the right. Tim, the, the nat gas trade has trading, been called a widowmaker. Yeah, in, trading in, nat in gas, it's, it's, it's put a lot of people out of business, and it will continue. And, and the headlines around both production and seasonality uh, and, and where at least mild weather and has been forecast, what do we hear? This is going to be the warmest year on record. Um, doesn't help prices, but a, a lot of volatility in the space uh, and not necessarily a read through to the broader energy sector, which I think for 24 is a great place to be. I think this is a function of where actually dividend yields are very much uh, held. I think free cash flow generation and much lower oil prices. We've seen a nice, decent rally here on Brent. And, and the, the story from that gas back into just uh, the developed petroleum space is that you have, I think, support for oil, uh, Brent, somewhere around 65 to 70, which means a lot of these companies relative to the S&P, again, I'm talking about your Chevrons, I'm talking about some of your oil services, I think are very, very attractive relative to the, to the S&P. All right, coming up on the show, the game is on for sports in the new year. The media landscape is changing and there's a lot up for grabs. So which companies will win the tip-off? and which could ride the bench. We'll dig into that story ahead. But first, Intel's historic chip deal shares jumping after the company announced plans for a new semiconductor plant. Where they're building that plant and how that stock will fare when Fast Money returns after this break. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks are closing higher to kick off the holiday shortened trading week. The Dow jumping more than 150 points. The S&P nearing record levels at this point, up a half a percent. And the tech-heavier Nasdaq composite leading gains up more than half a percent as well. And some stocks hitting all-time highs include Lululemon, Cintas, Fastenal, Ingersoll Rand, and Lamb Research, all trading near those levels. Uh, speaking of Lamb Research, let's turn towards Intel and the computer chip side of things. The chip giant is leading the S&P today up just about, you can see their 5% in regular trading, announcing plans to build a new $25 billion factory in Israel. It's the largest investment ever by a company in Israel, and Intel says it will create thousands of jobs. That stock, by the way, and Dow Component is up almost 50% in just the last three months alone. So here to break down the big announcement and the broader chip trade is CNBC's Christina Partzinevelis covers those semiconductors. So take us through the headlines. What are we looking at here right. for Intel? Intel actually began the construction on that $25 billion facility. They announced it a while ago. So that's not something new. But what's new today is that it's actually getting $3.2 billion in subsidies from Israel's government. So that's the interesting thing there. And you saw the stock reaction, but it's actually not the highest award it's received. The German government promised about $10 billion in subsidies. And we're still waiting to see what's going to happen from the U.S. government 
with the CHIPS Act, we know that Intel has promised to invest about $100 billion here on American soil, building the world's largest chip-making complex in Ohio. They haven't received funding just yet. But Intel CEO wants you to think of Intel as two companies now, a chip designer that competes with NVIDIA as well as AMD, and then a chip manufacturer that competes with global foundries and TSMC. But it's only starting to crack that manufacturing business, entering the or securing the number nine biggest foundry by revenue in Q3. This according to Trendforce. That's actually the first time in the in the top 10 in a long, long time. And speaking of that business, it actually brought in about $311 million in Q3 revenue, which is still small, but that's up 300% year over year. And really, all of this is about changing investor mindset, right? Because Intel has had a long history of manufacturing delays. But CEO Pat Gelsinger promises every time he's on stage that they're on track to deliver uh, their new chip processes by 2025. It's a matter of, like, do people believe him? Uh, so this is also a story about kind of pitching yourself to investors and where the growth is, because <laughs> it's a very different story for designing chips, kind of like an ARM does, NVIDIA, AMD, versus actually just making the physical product, which is what a foundry is, right? right. So where is that growth story, Tim? Is well, it on the manufacturing side or is it designing the stuff that's going to power AI yeah, in the future? Yeah, look, it's, it's not that Intel's a growth story. It's that Intel is an argument where maybe you have a valuation argument Quite possibly you have an underinvestment argument in terms of underexposed in terms of the market. And I just think this is a story that's very underowned. So, you know, depending on where you want to price this thing, Christina's right to look at, at you know, where, where Pat Gelsinger is talking about the future versus like they just had their their AI, you know, kind of their own version of their AI day uh, a couple weeks ago. It, it gives you some sense of where they are positioned. And it's it's not the growth side of the business. You know, so they are more bricks and mortar. Um, I just think you look at the chart and you see the outperformance of almost 30 percent to NVIDIA over the last three months, and that's a function, really, of relative value. This is where stock picking has come into play, because if you picked NVIDIA, AMD, versus just owning the SMH ETF, this is something big, but is there something that you can glean from the charts with regard to SMH versus everybody else? Well, one thing we know, of course, that the semis, as a group, are still have not achieved their all-time highs relative to the market, which is incredible. So the dot-com peak is still... Um, and not achieve, meaning you more losses than gains relative to the market going back 23 years. But as it relates to Intel, it really where you start your narrative. Intel is now a comeback kid, but it's nowhere near its own dot-com peak, right? That was $75. This stock's trading at 50, whereas the SOX index is almost up 200% from its own prior dot-com peak. So I think th- despite being outperformance that's extraordinary, you can you could get more from this than you would from NVIDIA day to day. Christina, the foundries versus design story is one that we're going to hear played out a lot more because there is so much of an emphasis on supply chains. We saw it over the last couple of years. It's the reason why the CHIPS Act is there. What is that story going to look like in 2024? Well, Intel has said that they've signed four customers by the end of this year. Boeing, U.S. government is among uh, some of those customers. it, it is a growth story for Intel. The design part is still is very relevant because of the AI PC that they are saying is going to be the future. Every mm-hmm. you know AI on, on the edge, and that's what's going to help them propel in that area and, and compete against Nvidia and AMD. But uh, within manufacturing, the the latest news is that Intel actually secured an ASML machine, which is very very expensive, over 150 million dollars. That's where they lacked in the past. They didn't go down that advanced uh, chip technology route. So he's trying to make up for that now and finally getting one of these big pieces of machinery here in the United States. But to see the turnaround still will take a few years to actually be able to go from number nine on that chart to anywhere in the top four, you know, competing with Samsung and TSMC. 
big deal for sure. Lots of competition internationally. All right, thanks very much, Christina Partsonopoulos, on that. Coming up on the show, on the clock, media giants are under pressure as some major sports rights are up for grabs in the coming year. Could this spur more M&A in linear and streaming video? A live report coming up after the break. And then later on, Cura Leafs' Boris Jordan will join us on the road ahead for cannabis in the new year. Will fortunes shine brighter than they did this year? Stick around and find out. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Sports media madness is coming our way in 2024 with the rights to several marquee properties up for grabs, including the NBA. Julia Borston joins us now with the very latest on this jump ball. Who's in the competition, Julia? Well, here's the thing, Dom. Sports is the most valuable content on TV, which means that interest in NFL rights could drive NBA as well as upcoming NBA rights, which are very much in demand right now. With Amazon's second year with Thursday Night Football and Google's Sunday ticket deal, the tech giants have showed that they're willing to pay up for football, while Paramount Global's NFL rights on CBS are one reason that media giant is drawing acquisition interest, particularly from Warner Brothers Discovery, which is a rare media giant without NFL rights. So now the focus turns to the NBA's next deal, which starts with the 2025-2026 season. The league is an exclusive negotiating window until April with Disney and Warner Brothers Discovery. Their ESPN, ABC, and TNT currently have the rights to NBA games. Then NBC Universal, CNBC's parent company, along with Google's YouTube, Amazon's Prime Video, and Apple are expected to take a look at those NBA rights and pursue them, while the league is expected to want to limit its rights owners to three packages. Now, the NBA is reportedly looking to get paid as much as $75 billion for its next multi-year deal. That would be three times the value of its 2014 deal. We could definitely expect streaming to play a bigger role this time around as it has with the NFL. Dom? All right. Julia Borson with the latest state of play on sports. Thank you very much. Uh, Bonawin, let's talk about this media landscape. Is this one that you want to buy into? Uh, I, I mean, I think for the media players, they have to buy into this. I mean, if you if you take Fubo, for example, they were essentially able to create a business model solely around streaming. And I think this is one of the differentiating factors when you look at a Hulu or you look at an Amazon. As she spoke, you know, some of the, the large tech players, their propensity and willingness to spend. So I would expect Warner Brothers to be involved in some capacity. And if not, I would not su- be surprised if Apple was a sneaky contender here. All right. There's the trade on the media side of things. Tim, do you feel as though Warner Brothers Discovery, Paramount, some of these things have been so beaten up. Is this the place to be? I I tell you what, I I, I like what's going on with some of these beaten up, uh, some of the parts, asset plays um, who aren't necessarily in the exciting part of and they have certainly needed to show that their streaming business can generate, you know, real free cash flow. But, um, you know, I think the, the, the paying for content, especially in the sports world right now, is going higher and it's going higher because people like Amazon and Disney uh, and Google can can bid almost whatever they want to support their their franchises. So um, I, I like the M&A backdrop in the sector. I do think there's a lot of assets up for grabs. And I do like Peacock uh, also from a download perspective and the strength for you know the parent company here. Uh, I think there's actually a very good story around the sports there. And that's part of what made November so strong. Still a driving force behind it's it, Carter. It's, as you say, it's a tough space. I mean, if you were to look at the S&P 500 media sub-industry group, picking up a lot of these names, it is at its relative low of 09 to the market. I mean, it's so at some point, can a stock turn? Everyone's waiting for Pfizer. Guess what? They're waiting for Intel. And finally, it did. But it's usually better to wait a little bit. All right. There we go. 
on the media story. Coming up on the show, pot stocks up in smoke this year, despite progress on legalization and other key measures in Washington, D.C., but could higher times be ahead for 2024? We will ask the executive chairman of Curaleaf after the break. Fast Money will be back after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Pot stocks burning bright in today's session, though the group is still, as you can see, broadly lower for the year. Key legislation on cannabis, including the Safer Banking Act, stalling in Washington, but investors still optimistic that the drug could be rescheduled as soon as next year for Boone in the industry, and it could be that way. For more on that outlook for next year, let's bring in Boris Jordan, Curalee founder and executive chairman. The company began, by the way, trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange earlier this month. Boris, it's a pleasure to have you here on Fast Money. Thanks for taking the time with us. Let's talk about whether you are optimistic about 2024 and can it be better than 2023? Good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, anything can be better than 23. 23 was a terrible year for the sector, uh, driven by slower growth, higher cost of capital, um, uh, and a lot of impediments because of regulations. I think that uh, we're seeing a better uh, framework for 24. Uh, you know, we have New York that just went adult use. That's a It's the second largest market in the United States. We're hoping that Florida will likely flip to adult use uh, next year. Uh, We're seeing Germany move towards adult use in March. Sorry, um, a a medical light. So there's a lot of growth catalysts going into uh, 2024. And of course, you know, the elephant in the room is whether the U.S. federal government steps up to the plate and does what Germany is doing, and that is removing cannabis from the narcotics list or in in the U.S. case, moving it from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3 which would obviously free up a tremendous amount of cash in the sector because today the sector pays a 70% tax rate. Uh, That would drop to a normal tax rate uh, like any other U.S. business. Hey, Boris, it's Tim. Congrats on Toronto. And and frankly, it really is an exciting dynamic for institutional ownership. Um, But when you talk and you spent you spent a a career um, both dealing with big institutions, building companies, uh, you know how they think um, outside of the the structural limitations on their ability to own cannabis stocks. What what are they what do you think the pushback is on owning the sector? Because we we both know there has been zero new institutional capital, even though you come out of the last couple of quarters, purely certainly showed that generating free cash flow, even on the existing footprint, these companies have never been run better. Um, and yet, you know, there are structural issues, but there are also impediments to the institutional follow through. What, what do you think they are? Well, I think there's three. I think the number, the biggest one, of course, is, is, is the plumbing. Uh, and, and in the case of Cureleaf, um, we fixed that now with uplisting to the TSX. We're waiting in early January to get uh, some of the larger banks to start custodying the stock, which we're expecting will happen. Uh, and then we can start marketing to large-scale investors. I think the second reason is, Tim, large-scale investors, because of the plumbing problem, haven't been looking at this sector. So I was on the phone with one of the largest long-onlys recently, and he said, Boris, you've got to re-educate us. We haven't been looking at this sector for three years now because we couldn't own it. Now that we can own it because you're on the TSX, you got to come back in. So I think education, coming back with education and starting to co- having analysts cover the sector is going to be important. Obviously, rescheduling. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, you know, most of these companies are producing free cash flow, but we could be producing a lot more if we rescheduled and the profitability will become greater. And so I think it's a wait and see market. People don't believe the federal government anymore. And I don't think they're going to get involved heavily until such time as they actually see the federal government move um, on schedule one to schedule three. And we're hoping to see that in the first four months of next year. 
The latest they can do it realistically, given all the various legislative impediments to the elections, is April. I personally think the federal government, if they're going to do it, is going to wait till April to do it, because that's what they always do. But we'll see over the next three or four months. All right. That's Boris Jordan at Curalee. Thank you very much, sir, for the state of play on what's happening with cannabis in 2024. We appreciate it, sir. Happy New Year. Let's trade this, guys. Carter, I'll go to you on this one first. The marijuana trade, broadly speaking, there's a handful of ways to play it. What exactly are you looking at and what the charts say? Right. The most liquid ETF is the advisor shares, MSOS. We might have a chart of it, but it has all the elements of a proper bottom, which is, say, the long and protracted decline, the basing, and now starting to curl up. So I would choose that or MJ, alternate harvest. What do you think about this, Tim? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm long uh, Cureleaf. It's a core part of I, I trade also in managed cannabis ETF. And, and I, I think if you look at 24, the profitability in the sector is actually something that's really started to turn. These rescheduling dynamics that, that Boris talked about, uh, you know, this is a case where this administration can actually follow through on this. You don't need Washington. We've heard this so many times before. That's why you're never investing based upon what you expect to happen in Washington. That's been a recipe for disaster. Uh, do the bottom up story and, and stay long. All right. Thanks very much, guys. Up next, your final trades are coming up. Keep it right here. Welcome back. It's time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Julie. Yeah, I think, you know, if you want to be in biotech but don't want to pick winners, Sertara serves them. So it's a nice way to play it. C-E-R-T. All right. Bonowin. Found some common ground with John Stolfus. I am leaning underweight XLU. Oh, all right, Tim. Tom, thanks for joining us. And looking so sporty today, too. Pleasure. I mean, Thank really, it's a breath of fresh air. Walmart, we talked about multiples earlier in the show. If there's a company that should be actually raising, trading at a higher multiple, it's Walmart. I like Walmart. And Carter Braxton work. Playing for lower yields. That would be the iShares Treasury Bond ETF, TLT, short. All right, thanks very much for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. We'll see you tomorrow. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.